1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
0: From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to The Louisiana Hunter Podcast.
2: You're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast presented by Scree Gear, performance hunting apparel, performance layering system. We talk about them all the time. And unless they decide to increase the time on this risk-free sale they're offering, this will be the final weekend for the 14-day risk-free promotion. It's a whitetail starter bundle, everything you need, head to toe. To get in a tree stand, 14 days, try it, buy it. buy it and try it for 14 days if you're not totally satisfied money back guarantee but scree offers a lifetime warranty and a sizing guarantee on everything and with this cooler weather hitting us it's probably time for people to start looking at those mid layers and heavier layers kyle and i both really like the ptarmigan that they offer which is the goose down extremely lightweight but extremely warm and they now offer an over pant to go with that jacket and you can use the code LABH for 20% off of your first purchase. That doesn't apply to the bundle or other sale items. But if you want to fill your cart one by one, you can get 20% off your first purchase with the code LABH. Follow them on social media, find out more about their products, and shop online at Uh Kyler, uh, as we're recording this, we just had a tremendous, I guess front push through a lot of bad weather all across the south but specifically i think pretty much our entire state was hit by it in some way first of all following what we went through this summer with the tremendous devastation of hurricane ida i know that there was some tornado damage today in different parts of the state and i hope that everyone was safe and that nobody is dealing with even more property damage um, damage or anything like that to their personal uh, property or homes or anything like that. But outside of that, what this means is a cold front. And this weekend mm-hmm. should provide us some really awesome weather for being in the woods. What do you have planned for this weekend? Oh, man. Um, this weekend, actually, uh, I don't I don't know yet. I
3: got invited, pretty excited about this. I'm, I got invited to the after party for Dave Chappelle and Joe Rogan tomorrow night. In New Orleans so I'm actually I actually put the cold front on the back burner because one of my best friends is planning that party but he'd come down so I'm gonna drive down tomorrow night and do that which by the time this airs it'll be well this will be the morning after I'll, when this airs I should be not feeling good by the time this is airing I should be very hungover morning of the next day but um, I had planned to hunt you didn't learn a lesson after. a couple weeks ago not <laughs> at all, man. I will, look like, like I, I will let all barriers and walls down, I guess, if there's celebrities involved in New Orleans, but um, anyway, uh, but so he, here's the thing. The reason I'm pumped about it, I'm excited about it, is because, um, and I, this is kind of a humble brag for a second, my company, Thirsty Designs, we make all the hats for PSC archery. And we also make all the hats for knock on nation for uh, John Dudley um, and Joe Rogan and John Dudley are close friends. And so um, not to like Bay Ruth point to left field with a baseball bat, but I'd really like to go there, and meet Joe his contact and figure out how we can work with his brand also. Um, and so that's the whole reason I'm going. I'm, it's not like some starstruck. I can't believe it's Dave Chappelle and Joe Rogan. I'm, this is more like, Hey, let's see if we can make you some badass ass hats, you know? So um, anyway, I, that wasn't the question that you asked me, but that's what I'm doing in place of that particular cold front. But Saturday, maybe Friday afternoon, uh, I do have some spots set for a north wind. I do have two nice bucks on public land that I am um, trying uh, – I'll lie and say I'm trying to target. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been, at this point in time, I'm just hoping anything walks by that's, in, in, uh, that's huntable. Um, but I'm starting to see some good scrapes. Um, not really seeing rubs as much as I was like a week or two ago. But just trying to find some good sign. I did find a shed the other day, which was kind of cool, which is always, you know, sheds are cool for two reasons. Number one, found deer which is cool. But number two, nobody's been there yet. You know, like, yes. that's, to me, that is the byproduct of finding a shed of, like, hey, this area is totally untouched so far. So, um, and then, not only that, but one of the bucks that I have on camera that I really want to kill, I'm pretty sure it's a shed from uh, last year. I'll have to send you the video. You you and Michael can look at it and see if y'all think it's the same deer. But he's a nice, I think he's a big nine point. Um, but uh, I'm going to be hunting this weekend my in-laws are in town doing a little bit of construction at the camp and then prepping for out of state. Did I say you I'm going out of state like I, yeah. I figured this out yet. Yeah. So um going yeah. to Oklahoma the November 10th through 17th. I'm pretty excited about it.
2: Yeah, that's uh I think I actually I've made a couple of posts on a couple of our uh community and and social pages just kind of it, 'cause cuz I think a lot of people are starting, I know I am, starting to kind of shift that mindset because we're only weeks away from our migration northward for the Midwestern yeah. rut hunts, pre-rut, rut. We've actually had some, uh, I posted a picture today of uh, one of our uh, community members who's active, uh, follows along with Louisiana Bowhunter who killed a really nice buck up in Kansas uh, at 180 yeah. Outdoors uh, pre-rut hunt and oddly. And Uh, not oddly but um i did the same thing that he did last year i went up for the same week last year because of a cold front and was able to kill the biggest eight point i've ever killed um on a pre-rut hunt so when you get that weather up there even right now all the way up through halloween can be really good but it you know obviously november the first through the latter part of november really the whole month in different phases is fantastic in all those states up there and I know you're going to northern Oklahoma. You're basically going to be in southeast Kansas because uh, we talked about it the other day, and that area you're hunting is, I, I think I mentioned to you, if, if I blindfolded you and, and took you in the woods, you wouldn't know you weren't in Kansas. You know, it's so yeah. close, and the landscape doesn't change much right through that area. So, um, <clears throat> you know, it leads me to one point that I wanted to make at the beginning of this this podcast, and, and that's um, Rick, who killed that buck at 180, He booked that hunt with 180, um, referencing, you know, us talking about them on the podcast. And I've talked to a number of the people in the businesses that are supporting our podcast this year, and they've all had really positive things to say. And so I just want to say thanks to our listeners. You guys are are really good at communicating with us, you know, speaking, me and Kyler, about, um, you know, what we do on the podcast but supporting our supporters is a really big deal and we can't say thank you enough so uh i just wanted to mention that thank you all for uh supporting our supporters it makes a big difference on this podcast and uh again we just can't say thank you enough about that i I am i'm still kind of you know my mind has shifted towards what's going to happen here in the next two to three weeks uh i'm actually going to make a a big whirlwind trip and go hunt three or four days in Missouri and then go down and hunt three or four days in Kansas. And um, if I tag out early enough, I may even grab Oklahoma or Nebraska somewhere in there that that that's pretty wishful thinking, yeah. but, but you know, you never yeah. know. I mean, you never know that time of the year, it might kill You're on the first hunt and have two days to go hunt a public piece, piece somewhere in between. But uh, at home, I mean, I've pretty much been on a mission to get my son his first year with a bow and he is, ate up with it and this year is the year that the light switches really went off for him you know shooting his bow practicing and wanting really wanting to hunt you know i've I've, he's always wanted to hunt he's killed several deer with a gun but this year he wants to hunt all the time (laughs) and um yeah so we we've got several nice deer and and a pretty good just overall general population of deer on the property here behind our house and we haven't even touched our mississippi property yet so um I'm excited about this weekend because I think that we've played our cards right. We've only hunted a handful of times because of the weather and so we haven't pressured any of these spots that I've been really uh, set up and waiting on the right times and so I feel like this weather's gonna hopefully put something we're not gonna be real picky. We got a couple of nice bucks, but I'm obviously it's his first opportunity with a with a bow and I'm we're not gonna be real picky. Hopefully we get him a a shot with this weather get some deer on their feet so i'm excited about nice. the weekend so um well, go ahead well one of the things one of the things
3: that i wanted to say um about uh my out-of-state trip i'm, I'm going with um david o'donnell and hunter foray they both are out of lafayette uh, and david o'donnell is who does all the sales and fulfillment for louisiana bow hunter uh, stuff so if you ever order a hat or something David is who mails it out or if you've seen it in a shop he's the one that brought it to the shop etc cetera, etc cetera. and um they uh, they invited me a couple maybe not, maybe two weeks ago or so and what's funny the way that I am is um I uh I really I really don't like wishy-washiness in people it's one of the qualities that I like repels me and people that are like eh, I don't know you know I, like give me the details I, I, I might go you know I don't like that stuff so they invited me they're like hey we're gonna do this Oklahoma trip we're probably gonna go by boat glass shoreline make some moves on deer if we see them blah blah blah. and I was just like I'm in uh when are y'all going and they're like no, 11th through the 17th all right yeah I'm in Where we? and, then, and then like the next three days I did this like trickle game of 20 questions uh what city is this in um what property are we hunting um where are we staying like I like I agreed to it (laughs) without having any of the details which is usually the opposite usually people are like uh, I don't know man tell me where we're staying how much is it going to cost how many people are going what you know who's bringing what blah 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 and then they get all the details they're like no uh, I'm, I'm gonna go to Missouri instead you know but me I'm like yeah I'm going to Oklahoma what, where is it?
4: <laughs>
3: you know, I'm in. And so, but I will say this, though, this is this is the point I wanted to get to was um, back when I was a really big duck hunter, like I had the lease and the dog and the boat and the decoys and the spots and blah, 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 blah. Like I always called myself a taker. And in hunting, I've always considered there to be takers and goers, right? Um, there's people that take you hunting and there's people you go hunting with. And, um, or sorry, this you go hunting with other people and then you take other people hunting. And so for me to not have to like plan this whole thing out from scratch, it's like a huge, it's, it already feels like a vacation.
4: Yeah.
3: Um, and, and so I've been kind of like diving into their program for the week and every day I'm like, we had a group text. I'm like, God, this is a really good program. Like I'm pretty excited about this. Y'all, y'all, y'all really thought this through really well. So I'm pumped about it. Um, We've got, uh, we've got plan C's, plan D's. Like if the first, you know, plan, you know, A through N don't work, we got to, you know, whatever the next letter is. So we, we're, we're ready to go. And, and, and it's kind of like that exciting pre honeymoon period of like, Impending event coming up, you know. You know, we, I need to be working, but I find myself playing on Hunt and/or Onyx on my computer for an hour a day.
2: If you're frustrated with your property, the forecast for the season doesn't look too great, or maybe you've just decided it's time to move on and invest in your own property, contact our friend Slade Priest at Southern States Realty a part of the Realtree United Country Hunting Properties Network, the largest network of hunting and recreational real estate experts in America. Nobody in our area sells more, and Slade's not just a realtor. He's not just a real estate agent. He's a passionate outdoorsman that understands what the buyers and sellers need. He knows how to put them together. He knows how to look at a piece of property and put the right people in the right place. Nobody sells more. You've seen him on outdoor TV. You see him on digital media. He spends his life in the outdoors. He's passionate about it, and it comes through in the results. If you're in the market, contact our friend, Slade Priest, the Hunting Land Man. Huntinglandmanms.com. Check out all the new listings that he's posting on a regular basis, some exciting properties. Check them out. Huntinglandmanms.com. Yeah. I think that whether it's a, whether it's managing and working on your private ground or it's just simply all of your focus being on one or two or three public pieces that you frequent all the time, I think that just the amount of effort and planning and preparation that we do for hunting in general tends to become obligatory, and monotonous and it it starts to kind of like anything else it starts to kind of just all muddle the waters a little bit when you do something that's completely off script and spontaneous but exciting in 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 theory you know in concept it kind of gives you that that breath of fresh air you know it's like something totally new you know just something totally new and i i'm going to 180 outdoors when i go to kansas and and so it's a totally different thing from what you're doing, but in, in a similar vein, I, I I have no idea where I'm hunting. You know, I've, I just kind of got a deal worked out with Matt where we got a date range set, and when I get there, he's going to point out some properties that I can hunt, and I'm just going to go. And to yeah. me, that's almost better than knowing exactly. And I might, it might be a property I've been on before, but just the idea that I'm going to show up, and I'm going to have a day to prep and plan and then start hunting, and I don't know what I'm stepping into. It's just going to be... a uh, kind of make it happen and you know kind of thing off the cuff so to speak in in a way that's that's kind of exciting in its own because you you know you you you're I think my natural instinct anyway is to try to prepare and then over prepare and then double check my preparations and all that kind of stuff and you kind of want to do that but you can't so it just kind of keeps you on edge and it gives you that refreshed excited feeling I think yeah so absolutely um so, for this episode, we're going to talk to our buddy Corey Gilbert with uh, Hog Boss. And Hog Boss is the cellular-controlled hog gates that you may have seen where you can trap the hogs in using cellular technology and whatnot. This is some something we've wanted to talk about in the past because it's uh, it's very prevalent in our entire listening area and becoming prevalent all over the place. and And I felt like this was a good time because something that I'm experiencing and I'm sure a lot of people are experiencing right now, this is the time of the year where you've probably spent the last couple of months, especially the last month, kind of planning food plots and and scouting and preparing spots, probably putting some corn out, rice bran. If you're hunting public land, you're probably hitting those feed trees that are getting active. And when that happens, when food hits the ground naturally or by the human hand, the hog situation starts to change. It goes from I've got hogs in the area, I'm finding some hog sign." to everywhere I want to go because there's food there and that's where the deer are going to be, the hogs are showing up too, and that becomes a complicated situation for everybody. And so hogs become a problem. And so we're all, I think, I know for you, when you're hunting public ground and there's limited – to what you can do, but you're still, <laughs> I, I know you, and you're not gonna pass up the opportunity to shoot one. And then uh, for all of us p- private land guys, I think it's a constant, never ending battle of figuring out the best way you can to manage and control your hog situation. So we're gonna talk to Corey, we're gonna get his take on some of this and talk a little bit about Hog Boss. Our guests every week are brought to you by our friend Brian Chamberlain, the Chamberlain Lending Team with Movement Mortgage. And if you're in need of a residential loan, primary or secondary vacation investment, cash out, rate reduction, renovation for add-ons, any of these kind of needs, contact Brian. Nobody does better. Low credit scores, potentially 0% down, and the Movement Mortgage, 42% of their profits go towards charitable organizations through the Movement Foundation, and that sets them apart Brian is licensed in Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, NMLS number 114586, and Movement Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender, NMLS ID number 39179. Corey, thank you for joining us and uh, coming on the podcast. How's it going, man? Man, I'm, I'm
1: great. How are you guys doing?
2: Pretty good. Pretty good. I, doing good. I,
1: I, I've been listening to the intro, and, I, you know, I am a huge bow hunter. That's that's what I do. You know, my my company is hog focused, but bow hunting is my life, and I am so jacked up about bow hunting right now.
2: <laughs> well, this you know we're finally we had a little taste of some cooler weather a couple weeks back, and and we're about to get probably our strongest cold front here over the next twenty four to forty eight hours, and then. You're turning the calendar in a couple of days to November and we all know what that means all across really all across the country, but but for Whitetail hunters specifically, um, you know, it's kind of the, the start of fall, really of fall. And yeah. and the different the deer are changing and ruts I, I, happening.
1: I've been watching my cameras all afternoon with this front pushing through. We have a uh I've got a lease in southern Illinois. And we've got a we got a ton of cameras out up there and they have been blowing up all day. I'm telling you, the first does are coming in like today in Southern Illinois,
0: which is really,
1: really strange to see for us. But there were uh, there were a couple of different areas on our property up there where it was just blowing up and. There's not a single guy. All all my club members are Louisiana guys, so we're all close friends, but <laughs> all we could do is sit there and watch it in slow yeah. motion.
2: Well, it's painful, man. Yeah. Well, it'll be here before you know it. Uh before we get into the hog thing, since you since since you brought it up and you mentioned it, tell us a little bit about your setup, what you know, what kind of bow you're shooting, um, and that kind of thing. We always like to ask our guests, you know, how they hunt, if they're doing anything different this year, what their gears like. What what are you working with?
1: I'm, I shoot the uh, tracks, Matthews tracks. And, you know, I, I shoot every bow every year that comes out. I love Matthews. I've shot it for years. Uh, I don't know if my next bow will be Matthews. We'll see what Hoyt comes out with next year. Uh, even though it's uh, Matthews, I think they are got some sort of maybe their 10-year, 20-year, 30-year bow coming out. I shoot a Matthews tri i I'm shooting the Easton 5-millimeter, what is it, full metal jacket? Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. maybe so.
1: The the uh, I love Rage Broadheads. I know that is a huge controversy. I hate to even throw that out there, but I'm a big Rage guy. Uh, I shoot the Tri-Pan. They came out with a no collar this year. I picked up some of those, so I'm going to try them. Uh I've had good success with that, man. I, I'm like I'm like most guys out there. I've been bow hunting. I'm I'm fifty years old this year. I've been bow hunting since I was sixteen. So I've tried a little bit of everything. And I when I say I've been bow hunting since 16, I have bow hunted every year of my life since I was sixteen years old. I've tried just about everything. I like my setup. I, I shot a doe in Illinois here a couple of weeks ago and uh She made it about 70 yards with a, you know, and this is no knock on rage at all. She made it 70 yards with very limited blood trail. I I was really pleased with my shot, but I didn't get a pass through because the rage, I hit her, I hit her opposite shoulder, front shoulder and didn't get a pass through. And it was a very slight blood trail, but we were able to manage it. But that, that was my biggest setback this year. And one of the guys in camp, and you guys can probably tell me more about this because I'm I'm a little bit old school, but he was talking about the the weighted, uh, the the shooting a heavier arrow. They they make a, like a weighted tip that you can put on these arrows. Yeah, he thought maybe I would have gotten a pass through if I was shooting a weighted weight forward arrow. Yeah, well, I'm shooting the hundred grain hundred grain uh, rage.
2: So Sorry. I. I mean, Kyle, Kyle. I know Kyle is going to have an opinion as well. My opinion is this: I think Rage is an extremely lethal head if it's paired with the right setup. It 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 has tremendous benefits to what it can do in its design. The problem over the last decade or whatever with Rage has been: it's one of those. Com- this is just my opinion. I said that very matter of factly. The problem, in my opinion. With rage, has been they're one of the companies that has poured an absolute ton of focus and money into marketing, and what it's created is a ton of guys just assuming that if they screw this on the end of any arrow in any setup, that it's just, you know, it's the it's the uh, the thirty alt six of of archery equipment, and it and 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 like anything else, you, you got to pair your equipment correctly. To maximize the benefits of of the equipment that you're using and if you do that uh, there's nothing wrong with rage it's actually a, a a good design and a good product now as far as the through thing that's bow hunting i'm sorry but i'm just going to say it that way that's what i think that's just bow hunting i mean when you get in a situation where you hit an offside shoulder there's a whole lot of situations with with arrow weight and broadheads and all that that maybe had done better but the fact of the matter is when that happens and sometimes it's a bad shot and sometimes it's just luck it's just how the deer moves it's the angles and stuff like that when that happens it, it, it there's no guarantee for a pass through no matter what you do i mean it's just not meant that that's not the best outcome the best outcome is soft tissue and if it's not soft tissue then anything can happen and it really doesn't matter um, when it comes down to all that, there's not a fix-all solution. That's my take on, on your question.
3: Corey, Corey, are you shooting? You're shooting 70 pounds.
2: No, it,
1: and, and man, I'm 50 years old. I used to shoot like 85 pounds when I was tournament shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm shooting 64 pounds. Yeah, that's Six, still plenty. 64 pounds.
3: Yeah, that, that's still plenty. But uh, an FMJ has plenty of what. What I call ass behind it, and it's got plenty of, plenty of um, weight, momentum, etc. Um, especially for a rage, um, the 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 problem that I quote unquote see with rages like like sand is when you go too light with them, which you're not. I mean, I, w- I would have to guess you're probably in the high 400s, low 500 grains with that with that arrow. Um, yeah, I don't think I'm quite
1: hitting 500 with what I'm shooting.
3: And that's, so that's 4, all the now. Everybody's 500 plus. Well, that's mm, I, see, I, I, don't, I don't think that that matters. I personally don't think that, that that matters that much because, you know, if we want to bring the Ranch Ferry into it, which is what a lot of people are getting their information from on this right now, it's, it's, um, it is uh, – the Ranch Ferry had a problem. You know what I'm talking about with the Ranch Ferry, right? Yes. Okay. The Ranch Ferry's problem was really, really big hogs in Texas. That's what he was trying to get penetration on. And so the Ranch Ferry's problem that he was trying to solve was trying to get throughs or, you know, deadly penetration on these 250, 300 plus pound hogs and a really heavy arrow. And, and obviously some other broadhead types are a great way to do that people have taken his word as gospel because there's people that say things very adamantly, loudly. And, um, uh, you could say even convincingly are often looked at as experts and you don't need all that to kill a white tailed deer. And so, um, I have done exactly with what you're talking about, which is where it just sticks through on the other side. I've caught the, the, bone elbow socket shoulder elbow socket on um the opposite side of a deer before with um with uh what do i shoot the uh carbon hex i shoot 373 grain arrows like hunting weight super super light like super super light and and so i've had it go both ways i've had it stick in a buck's like shoulder socket and it tore it up but i did not get through it and then also last year i posted this picture on the community i shot a doe at 34 yards where when i shot she pushed forwards sorry yeah push forward with the legs and like push backwards um and i ended up catching both of her shoulders shoulders and went through both of them and like both of her leg bones shoulders like the whole assembly and shattered both of them to shreds. and I'm not supposed to be able to do that, in some people's opinion, with my weight. And so I actually think – What was the difference? Well, the difference was – I really – so I really think the difference is there are some parts of an animal that if you you build an arrow that is meant to destroy the hardest – part of an animal to get through you're essentially prepping for like the one percent of all shots um not the 99 percent. and i would rather have 99 percent built arrow that i deal with the one percent as an outlier so the difference was on because uh, i've only i've only ever since i've gone to these super light arrows because that's my i'm a speed guy and if you were shooting 85 pounds in in um in uh um uh field not field archery, um target archery, you were a speed guy, but you had an overdraw too, didn't you?
1: I was, but that was I mean, yeah. we're talking we're talking 20 twenty plus years ago. Everybody shot but, an overdraw.
3: Yeah, but but the but the the reason was the same. You were looking for a flat, uh, flat, flat trajectory, trajectory. Yeah. and you were looking for the least amount of variance in yardage differences, right? And in and, and impact. And, and so that is the only reason I'm a speed guy. I'm not a speed guy because I want to get the arrow there faster than a deer can react to it. That's only a byproduct. I'm a speed guy because if I've got my pin set to 25 and a deer runs out to 37, I don't want to have to, like, rearrange him and then hopefully he doesn't move by the time I get my range finder down and then make the adjustment. Like, I want to be like, okay, I'm and two, two inches higher. And, and hit the release, and I'm good. That's why I'm a speed guy. And so, um, anyway, you asked me what, what the difference between those two shots were. Honestly, I think it was just luck in that instance. I don't think that I should have been able to blow, blow through both shoulders and legs in that, on that first doe. And then, again, I also think I should have been able to blow through the opposite shoulder on that buck. But you got to remember, you don't know, like on your doe, even though I'm not a huge rage fan and, and not, I'm not saying I hate him or anything, but I just, it's not my broad head of choice because I shoot a light arrow. I can't shoot any mechanical at all. You don't know really what your arrow went through before it hit that shoulder. You might've hit both ribs on either side before it got to the shoulder and it just didn't have enough to get through that third thing, you know? And so um, I'm, I actually think that you are being very responsible in your arrow selection for such a large cut rear deploying broadhead. Um I think that there's variables we'll never know about and we'll never like who was it was it was it Brian Chamberlain that's like I hate it when people say that's bow hunting. <laughs> but <laughs> it is sometimes. But, but that's bow hunting. Yeah. You know like there there is no there is no fix all cure all of all situations.
2: It's just not. No, the the, well but the only true fix all cure all is one of the variables that is somewhat out of our control and the fix all cure all is a well placed shot. Sure. (laughs) I mean that's you know, because there's so many things, there's so many configurations and there's so many options that are going to work on a well placed shot. And and and, but we all know that the deer takes a step or maybe one of the legs is, is back at the time of the shot and you don't reckon there's so many things that happen that really have nothing to do with your decision making or your execution as a hunter like you say use the word variables and that's really what it is you just don't know everything that's happening from the point of impact until the the arrow finishes its flight you don't know and in one situation that arrow finds a path and it and it maintains enough energy to do that much damage And and in another situation uh, you know, to your point, it, it hits something, or, or there's some angle of deflection uh, at entry that just slows it down, and it, and it can't push through, and that can happen regardless of whether you have a heavy front of center or this type of broadhead or that type of arrow. Those things are just going to happen. You know, yeah, I, mean, I don't that,
3: think there's anything wrong with your your arrow setup at all, Corey. Like I think it's good. I think I actually think more people would benefit from shooting a heavier arrow with a large cut on, with a large mechanical um than they would going with like gold tip hunters uh, xt hunters or something like middle of the road the middle of the road in weight you've got a lot of weight there you're talking about what are fmjs like 11.9 or or 12.5 grains per inch if you're talking about an arrow that is literally 30 percent heavier look my arrows are 7.9 grains per inch you've got five grains per inch on me you're you're 40 percent heavier than my arrow yeah. Grain per grain, you know, not on total weight, but still like, you've got plenty to work with. I think it's just, just chalk. I mean, y'all found her, right? Obviously. Oh yeah. We,
1: we found her. It was just, it was just one of those. I, I absolutely, my, my, I strive to get a pass through shot. That's to me, that is the, that's the key in bow hunting is to get a pass through. If especially if you're hunting alone, you're going to have to retrieve it by yourself. It's just, it just makes it so much more difficult if you don't get a pass through, even if it's a little bit further back than what you would like. uh, Looking back on it, I wish I would have, you know, my point of impact would have been about an inch and a half, you know, back further than it was, but she was coring away a little bit. and I put it right in the wheelhouse. When I, when I, when I released, I knew it was a dead deer. There was no question in my mind. But when I went to retrieve my arrow, I didn't get a pass through. I couldn't find my arrow. I found blood. Yeah. You know, I found blood. It was a 10-yard shot. I mean, it was a it was a pot shot. <laughs> so I knew exactly where to look, and there was blood all the way to the tree line, and then it just kind of dried up. And then it was, you know, pinpoint blood here. Two guy, two experienced trackers looking, uh, Dexter Dubois, uh, shout out to him. He came and helped me on the retrieve. Uh, it was it was a difficult retrieve for a 70-yard retrieve. It didn't have a dog or anything like that. So we worked to find her. And once she entered the tree line, I didn't know if she went left, right, straight. Didn't know high grass, you know, waist high grass. It, it was a difficult uh, recovery
3: for sure.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: are you are you um are you still in that property by down by angola i'm not but um my buddy
1: still manages that property they still got it going down there uh they still haven't cut the timber on it i'm kind of i'm kind of biding my time if they ever cut the timber i'm going to get back in it oh okay cool
4: well, well um yeah, I know
1: yeah this, this yeah. property i'm talking about is in illinois it's uh southern illinois it's it's little bit of a haul to get up there but great uh, yeah. great deer herd up there though very cool
3: well um, that's the this is why we like when we have other bow hunters on you know last week we had um, Brett Collier on and he's a bow hunter but I don't think we ever asked him what, he, mm-hmm. what his gear was I don't believe um, but because it always leads into some other discourse of you know, <laughs> why do you shoot this what's your experience because the reason why we ask these questions Corey, is because we have to remind ourselves that bow hunting is a very lonely sport you know like we're out doing it by ourselves i mean we have people we might have people at camp that we're having beers with at night and cooking deer chili with but in the morning we're pretty much going and sitting in a tree by ourselves so we don't people aren't it's not like a duck blind where they're like hey what shotgun is that what why are you shooting kent you know, you know, okay. show me your blind bag. You know what et cetera, et cetera. So we, when we have guests on, we like to t- know <laughs> what what are you shooting? Why'd you pick that? Is have you been shooting that long, long time? Are you changing anything? Et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but that's uh, that's all good info, man. Man, I'm I'm sitting there holding
1: the first bow that I ever bought when I was 16 years old. It's a it's an old trophy hunter bow. And this is the one that I was telling you I was shooting like 80, 85 pounds tournament shooting with. It's got a four inch overdraw on it. It's got the full <laughs> cable system. The wheels are about, I'm guessing they may be an inch and three quarters in diameter. Yeah. It, it weighs figure. about eight pounds. It's got this big bulky grip on it. And let's see, it's got this, uh, it's got the old Keller Pendulum bow sight on it. I swapped it over to a bow hunting rig
2: later on. It's, do you oh, remember the cool. Keller
3: Pendulum? hmm Oh, yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, yeah. I,
3: I, I wasn't bow hunting when it was out, but I, <laughs>
2: I remember yeah. it as a kid.
1: I, I actually won this sight in a, in a tournament shoot, uh, in Bastrop, Louisiana. So that's what I got on here. I, I love I love my equipment I, I rarely ever get rid of anything I, I keep it I don't know it just all has an attachment to it I, I remember different hunts with it I shot the uh, i shot a 22 I think it was a 22 13 or a 22 12 aluminum arrow. With a 125 grain Thunderhead broadhead. And I, I don't know if your listeners can even relate to the stuff that I'm talking about right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that, that's what I shot. And I killed a lot of deer with it. And I was hooked from the first shot. I think that that's when
2: we, cool. we have these conversations um, about equipment and what different people are choosing to use nowadays... I oftentimes try to remind myself, and I'm I'm being reminded of this a lot nowadays because I have a 12 year old son who's a pretty big boy, but still, aside from that, his bow, he, you know, he's the bow he's shooting right now. I think he's shooting 26 and inch draw length, and he's shooting about 45 pounds. And he'll be 13 years old in December, and I've made the comment recently since we've you know been shooting with him getting him ready for, to hunt this year the bow he's shooting now i didn't have a bow as capable from a performance issue to your know, standpoint i didn't have a bow as capable as what he's shooting until i was out of college and a grown man you know <laughs> and 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 so we we oftentimes forget we talk about um the bows and the arrows and the equipment that we use nowadays and we forget that I, it wasn't that long ago that we were at least I know I was, and the people that I ran with, we were very, very, very effective at killing deer with far less equipment
0: no and, and, and
2: technology than we're throwing around on this podcast on a weekly basis. So, And, mm-hmm. and you can go even further back to, than that. You go back to even, even further back before compounds when you had your traditional archers and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, there's, again, I go back to kind of wrap that part of the conversation up. You go back to the fix-all is a well-placed shot. I mean that's the fix all to all of it, and I, I oftentimes use baseball analogies because of my background and in 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 coaching and stuff like that. It, it it always tends to make sense to me. But as a baseball coach, I would rather have the the player that's going to hit 300 all year than the guy who is a very unproductive hitter. But when he makes contact, he can hit it really hard or hit it really far. But you know. Th- there there's some there's some flash to what he brings but i'd rather have the guy that's going to hit 300 and going to make contact all the time and i think that when we look at our hunting setups especially talking about whitetail deer now when we get into talking about hogs maybe there's some more specifics when we're talking about whitetail deer uh, that's my opinion to somebody is you're looking for a setup that sits in the middle like to collar's point that is a good performer in the majority of your situations not some kind of different or special setup that is really designed for specific situations that you really don't get all that often you want the that, you, you that's want. why
1: my draw weight is 64 pounds that, yeah for whatever reason i, I you know i wasn't i wasn't trying to hit an exact number i just pulled my bow back until i felt like i could comfortably hold it for 60 seconds and still make a clean shot and I tried you know I was just adjusting back and forth up and down, and for whatever reason 64 pounds was kind of my sweet spot and the way I like to hunt, you know clean shots uh, I, I, inside of forty yards I'm not a I'm not a long distance guy at all. I, I prefer a 10 yard shot over a 25 yard shot every day of the week but i I just try to scale everything back and just make it simple.
2: Hey guys, I want to take a minute to tell you about the newest supporter of our podcast, Freebird Coffee Company. Freebird Coffee is a Louisiana-based small business and it's veteran-owned and operated by three lifelong friends that love the great outdoors as much as they love great coffee. All three guys are big hunters and outdoorsmen and part of the Louisiana bowhunter community with one of them still serving our country as active duty military. They specialize in roasting small-batch, 100% organic, single-origin, rainforest alliance-certified coffee. Their coffee is a small-batch roasted, so it doesn't sit on the shelves for months like many of the big-bag coffees. This guarantees its freshness and gives it a taste that separates it from the rest. Freebird offers three different roasts, a medium roast, a French roast, and a high-caffeine roast, all in unique, eye-catching, outdoor-branded packaging. Freebird Coffee Company also offers a line of apparel and merchandise, and you can check them out at FreebirdCoffee.com. Currently, Freebird Coffee is distributed online only. However, they're looking to get into stores and expand expand their presence. So if you own a store or you know someone who has a store and would like to carry Freebird Coffee, reach out and get in touch with them. I can tell you my wife and I are both big coffee drinkers, and we brewed a pot of the French roast recently, and I was very impressed. So check them out online at FreebirdCoffeeCompany.com and follow them on Instagram at FreebirdCoffeeCO and use the discount code FREEDOM for 10% off your purchase. Freebird Coffee, the best damn coffee in the world. It's almost November, and I cannot wait to head up to Southeast Kansas and chase big bucks at 180 Outdoors. You've heard me talk all about them. Hunt180.com, your Southeast Kansas connection. And if you're in the market to own your own property, lease your own property, a fully guided hunt, a semi-guided hunt, whitetails, turkeys, waterfowl, these guys do it all. Hunt180.com. Hey, you heard us mention they're doing a late-season split waterfowl hunt in January. There's still a few spots remaining. And if you're looking for some of the best spring turkey hunting, check them out. You will not be disappointed. And some of the best whitetail ground you can find, lease, own, fully guided, semi-guided, your Southeast Kansas connection, hunt180.com. Let's talk about hog boss because that's um, – the company that, that you're representing here, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about Hog Boss and what you guys do, but I want you to give us a, a kind of a brief rundown of what the company does and what, what you offer.
1: So Hog Boss Gates was a company we started in 2017, latter part of 2017, and the, the evolution of the country company I talked to to, uh, to Kyler early on probably we've been in business less than a year I think the first time that he and I talked yeah the the evolution of the com- company has just been uh, I mean, it's been crazy it, to, to look at my generation one gates and then to look at what we do now is to me it, it, it it's just amazing you know that we've been able to come so far and, and we still got we, we never stop research and development on a product. I mean, we're constantly coming up with better ways to, to, to build this thing. Uh, new technologies keep coming out. They're getting better every day. Next, This time next year is going to be night and day to what it is right now, especially with the trail camera industry. Uh, that end of it is just uh, – it amazes me how much has evolved, you know, in, in just the four years that we've been doing this. But basically, we offer a uh, a controlled hog trap. Uh, we sell our product in a couple of different ways. Uh, being from the state of Louisiana, where most of the people that you meet and and, and you guys can can appreciate this, we're a very much do-it-yourself state. You know, uh, everybody wants to sell you the whole kit and caboodle, but our company realized early on that that people in our area really like to do things themselves and so we've offered our product in a couple of different ways to where you can buy the whole kit and caboodle if you want to but if you're a welder or fabricator or just somebody a carpenter somebody wants to kind of figure out your own way to build a better mousetrap then you can put our electronics on your mousetrap and make it work just like ours does and and we like that you know there's a couple of companies out there that do what we do uh really uh there's there's three top competitors in the nation i I would like to say that we're, we're we're in the top three and we're the only company that uh that offers our product that way where you can kind of build your
2: own gate and use our electronics to make it work so looking back you know, from a personal standpoint, what brought you into this market? I mean, what what got you started in research and development, and and putting this product together?
1: So, so before I started Hog Boss, I was uh, I, I've trapped my entire life. It, it's it's part of my heritage. My dad trapped, my grandfather's trapped, and when I talk about trapping, it's it's kind of a loss to art. But I'm talking about coon trapping, mink trapping, fox coyote, bobcat, uh, beaver, any kind of fur bearer, which is really a lost art in the state of Louisiana. There's not a lot of people that do it, but I was fortunate enough to grow up with, uh, you know, a parent, a grandparent that did that. And they kind of, they passed that on to me and like everything else in the outdoors, it just imprinted on me. And it's something that I'm passionate about. I love to do. So I got in this hunting club in, um, in St. Francisville, Louisiana, and uh, these guys knew that I was a trapper, By, by that, was, that was kind of a trade of mine. I, I, would, I would do a lot of nuisance animal trapping in the northern part of the state, and we had a hog problem down there, and hogs are something that I, never, I had never dealt with outside of just occasional hog on the deer stand. You'd shoot them or whatever, but when I say we had a hog problem, we had a hog problem, and they looked to me and said well you're the trapper figured out so you know I'm, I'm very uh i like to research things i like to look into what other people have done and what's available and i tried everything that i could find to help quell the feral hog problem down there and nothing would work and i kept looking at these hogs on camera because I, I would always monitor my sets with camera and say man if there's just if there's any way I could trigger that trap right now because they're all right where I need them to be. If there's any way I could make it work right now, remotely, you know, three hours away, I'm in Monroe, Louisiana, and I'm trying to fire a hog trap in St. Francisville. Man, that would be something. So I started researching, looking into what was available and figuring out how to put it together. And I actually built the first hog, hog ball system in my kitchen. And, uh, you know, I'm sure my wife, my wife was, she tolerates a lot of, you know, a lot of my, uh, addictions. I'm sure y'all are familiar with that, but she's just looking at, we move, you know, kind of, kind of side-eyeing me the whole time I'm working through this and I, I fired the thing and I'm, I'm sure it was like watching Edison the first time the light bulb lit up, uh, if you know it worked but it only worked once because i fried the entire electronic setup i had and uh but it was eureka it was a moment i, I knew i was onto to something and i could i could i could get to where i was going from from there so that's kind of where it started you know just there was uh necessity you know which uh
3: breeds innovation and, and that's where it came from mm-hmm. So, how many how many units have you sold so far? Do you keep up with that? It's
1: it's harder every year to keep up with it. Uh, we we have online sales, we have retail sales. I have people to come by and pick them up. Uh, I probably have somewhere in the vicinity of ten thousand units out right now.
3: That's awesome. Yeah. So yeah. so the reason why I asked you that was because. The last time that you and I talked about this, I feel like it was three years ago, maybe four. And that's just like me trying to guess what like what year we started discussing this. Um, are you?
1: Are you were in a transition period too. Then I, I think I kind of caught you at a moment yeah. of a uh, fork in your road, and <laughs> it, it was yeah. it was kind
3: of a strange time for both of us. I think that was probably two and a half years ago then, um, b- because you and I were discussing. I had made the leap into my company um, that I uh, own now, and you were still treating this as a side—not treating it as a side gig, but like it was a side business for you. You were still very much, you know, making good money in your career. Are you still doing your um, your? Are you still in the medical industry, or are you doing I'm the still doing?
1: I still I still work every day in the medical industry, but I've had to hire people and, and and it's it's been a very difficult road. I know you're a small business owner now, but hiring hiring somebody and hiring the right somebody are two completely different pathways. And sometimes sure. you don't know if you have the right people until you got them. And right now I have I have I'm very much a hands-on. I, I still work. Just like everybody else out there, I have, a, I have a day job, but I am very much involved with hog balls from, you know, 5 a.m. till midnight. Mm-hmm. There's there's not a moment in the day that, that my hands are not involved in that company.
2: Hunting season is here. That fall weather's upon us. If you've had some success or you're expecting to and you need a taxidermist, contact our friend Brian Anders at the Taxidermy Shop. Located at 2582 Highway 48, Liberty, Mississippi. Conveniently located right between Centerville, Liberty, and Gloucester. Whether you're chasing bucks and ducks in the fall, big gobblers in the spring, or you land that trophy fish, give our friend Brian Anders a call at 601-248-6945. No job is too big or too small. Brian offers quality work in a timely manner, family-owned and operated. If you need a taxidermist, Give our friend Brian Anders a call at the taxidermy shop six zero one two four eight six nine four five. I'm 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 curious to go in the direction of uh, uh, kind of finding out about the application process, and and so going back to you know you you said you originally developed your product in your kitchen, and you kind of like you said you you called it a eureka moment where you felt like you you had a pathway to create what you had going on in your head there. And and so as a guy who has spent a considerable amount of time myself trying to deal with hogs, what was it like when you first, I guess we'll call it a prototype or whatever, when you first got in the field with a product and you started trying to actually make this thing actually work and catch a hog? What are are some of the the steps that you went through, maybe some of the trials and tribulations that you dealt with to get it perfected and actually take it to market?
1: Well, you know, I'm a, uh, unfortunately, I'm a perfectionist kind of guy, so I I don't like to show up with something that's not going to work. So by the time I showed up with what was initially hog boss, uh, you know, a hog boss gate or hog boss control unit, I had worked out. Pretty much all of the bugs at that time that could be worked out in my kitchen, or you know, around the house, or however I could work it out. Because I don't know, it's sometimes it's really hard to save face around people that you know really well. Because if you if you fail in front of them, they seem to never forget about it. I don't I don't know what that is about the <laughs> the, the outdoor business and camaraderie and you know they they just never let you live it down so i was i was pretty much had everything sewed up by the time i showed up but let me tell you where my failures came in at was initially trying trip sets and everybody is familiar with the four by six hog trap and there's a lot of guys that make a uh, circular trap now where they use a uh uh It's a reel that they put uh, fiber optic tubing on. You you guys are probably familiar with that kind of trap. They're a small, maybe an eight foot or 10 foot diameter trap. Uh, I work with those a lot. I did the the figure nine traps where you make the coil with the wire and you kind of tension it and put a trip set in it. They walk in, they root around the trip wire and it slams shut. They can't get out of it. There is absolutely no hog trap that I, that I personally know of that I have not tried. And it was just marginal success with all of them. We would have sounders of, you know, maybe up to 20 hogs, which is a huge sounder down there because sounder sizes in that area are usually maybe six or eight hogs would be a, a normal sounder size. And if I got two or three of them, it was just devastating to me. I wanted to catch all of them every time. And I knew after experimenting with all these other techniques that there was just no way to do it unless you had total control over the trigger system. And that's kind of what set me on that path to being able to watch and trigger at the
2: same time. That's, uh, so I want to be, I want to put myself in the position of the fly on the wall. That's watching you the very first time you actually triggered a trap with hogs in it. I want, I want, I want to know if you can remember that moment. I want to, I want to relive I, that a little bit.
1: <laughs> I do. Uh, and, and again, it was the it, my hog trap was in St. Francisville, Louisiana. We had it on a high ridge because the water was up. Of the certain piece of property that we were hunting at once the water got to a certain level all the all the animals pushed to the north side of the road if you've ever gone into angola prison to the angola prison rodeo our club borders both sides of the road before you enter the gates of angola prison so when the water floods up that road is like a natural levee there and all the wildlife on the, on the, on the riverside pushes to the north side, and it was, uh, it was at that time of the year, when the water was up, the, all the hogs were on the north side of the road, we'd been watching them, we've got this trap set up, we'd been up there the, the prior weekend, and baited everything up, and we're watching this camera every night, and, you know, like most sailor, you know, trail cameras now, you can have any number of people monitoring it, so we've got, like, five or six guys watching this thing and it's all playing out in front of an audience of my peers who i have to live the rest of my life with because these are the same guys i hunt in illinois with right now so it's got to work right Mm -hmm. it's got to work so we're looking at a sounder of i think it may have been eight hogs and we're watching them come and go come and go and these are still images not like the live video feeds that we use now with the cameras so You'd have to wait, you know, two or three minutes and take another picture and send it. And it's like, OK, I'm counting pigs. Are they in there? And the minute that they all got in there, we're all texting back and forth. I fire the gate. We have to wait like two or three minutes and then Eureka. They're all in there. And we're like all at our own houses, you know, individually celebrating, but together air high in each other <laughs> that's the it bottom was, of the ninth was, feeling absolutely it was the most it, it really was and it still is the most tr- tremendous part of the whole you know idea the the development of it and then finally you know having
2: success with it it's it's crazy that's re- that's really cool i i can imagine what that's like and then you know i can also imagine there's there's probably a a moment i'm actually looking at your website right now and, and on the home page there's a picture right there in the middle of 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 one of your traps with somebody and they've got I know, what is this two four six eight ten twelve fourteen eighteen hogs in one picture something like that And it's like also that moment where you 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 like achieve more than maybe you even thought of like you you catch a sounder that size all at once for the first time things like I, I that do.
1: i get humbled every day and you know, I don't have I don't have as much time to chase hogs like I used to. I mean, it was it's still a passion of mine. And I'm hoping that in the next year that I can free myself up enough to get back into it. But I've got several people out there that have just totally destroyed my hog numbers. I mean, I've got a lot of work to do to catch up to where these guys are. They've just taken my system and run with it. We we get. We get tons of emails. We get tons of uh, instant messages uh, through Facebook and Instagram of people having success with our system. I try to share as many of them as I can. I, I absolutely despise social media. I try to do the mm-hmm. best job that I can with it. I think it's a necessary evil if you're in business. I, I my, uh, my ideals do not align with any of those companies. I can tell you I'm as far maligned with with Facebook and Instagram as anybody out there. But I I try to share images and, and just show people the success that and these guys are not professional trappers. These guys are dentists and lawyers and, you know, guys that work at paper mill or, you know, whatever, you know, all walks of life that take my system. And, you know, one of the things that I pride myself in is customer service with the company. So if you buy my product, uh, you give us a call. Nine times out of ten, we're going to have a conversation. You're going to have a conversation with somebody on the other end that is familiar with feral hog problem, and they're going to be able to talk to you about your unique situation, the terrain that you're in. Whether it's in uh, maybe you're in East Texas in the Post Oak Savannah where you have sugar sand, we can talk to you specifically about that. Maybe you're in a region in uh, central Oklahoma where you've got a hilly terrain and the the hogs out there are terrible about climbing. They they have, they're the worst climbing hogs that we've ever dealt with. But, you know, these are things that I've learned, uh, you know, in the last four and a half years, uh, you know, I continually get educated by my customers and I, I feel like we have a knowledge base now with our company that there's no feral hog problem that we can help you find a solution to.
2: I, I'm glad. I'm glad you. I'm really glad that you said those things because it segues very well into another point that I had um, that I wanted to, to 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 ask you about. I think is maybe even the most useful part for for your average listener, and that's to kind of understand. We've talked about what the product does, and and I mean just very generally how it works, but when it, when it comes down to the results and then the after effect of them, you know, the guy that's working really, really, really hard to manage hogs and the traditional trapping methods, um, shooting and, and, and killing as many as possible and all that. When you actually get to a place where you have this system like this and you're able to take out an entire sounder at a time, and maybe you're able to do that on multiple occasions throughout your property in a, in a a given time period, I mean, what is the, what does that look like for a property owner and property manager? How much difference does that make? I mean, obviously killing eight over killing three is (laughs) there's a numbers game there, but you know, what, what are people sharing with you and what are y'all seeing from just a pure hog feral hog management? Like uh, how quickly is the recovery and, and all that kind of thing when you're able to actually manage them on this level?
1: So, you know, and, and this is a great platform for me to present this uh, this idea to because we're talking to a bunch of deer hunters out there. And you know, a lot of my customers are unique to the problem of feral hogs. Uh, some of them are land managers. They don't hunt. A lot of them are land managed farmers, uh, USDA agents. Uh, but then I have a lot of deer hunters out there, too, that are trying to manage feral hogs. And what I tell them is over time, uh, I think a lot of people out there can relate to highly managed deer herds where you go in and we have a set number of does that we're going to try to kill every year. And when you hunt on, on properties like that, anybody's hunting on properties like that, realize that you don't see the age structure with the does on properties that are not managed well. So I'm talking about the old doe that's going to circle around your stand 360 degrees because she knows the stand is there because she's been to the feed pile before or whatever the setup is that old doe that's going to go in and ruin your hunt. Take that and multiply it times 10 and you've got an educated feral sow. Yeah. So once you, once you've started trapping these hogs over a period of time and the average lifespan of feral hogs is about five or six years so you start removing hawks systematically and you change the you change the age structure of your feral hog population they actually become easier to trap just like does on highly managed properties year in and year out are easier to kill because you don't have you don't have those four or five year old does that that know the game. It's the same thing with feral hogs, but feral hogs, and I, I got a lot of people that argue with me, and you know, I, I think that feral hogs are by far the most intelligent creature that we deal with in the in the southern wilds or across the U.S. I, I think I that agree. they are brilliant.
2: I agree. I've got a number of friends from other parts of the country that don't have the hog issues that we have in the south, and that, so they're. Their their only real exposure to feral hog issues and hunting deer, deer hunting uh, areas where there are hogs and hog problems, you know their only exposure to that is what they've seen on on social media or on television or something like that, and I think it's just our natural instinct is is we look at an old hog it's just an old hog, and I tell people all the time, you know I had a friend this weekend that came down and spent the weekend him and his family just visiting but um I also wanted to try to kill a hog and I'm like look man I got lots of them and I would love for you to kill as many as you possibly can but I'm going to tell you right now it's probably easier for me to put you on a deer than a hog even <laughs> even even in October when it's 85 degrees and south winds it's still probably easier for me to put you on a deer than a hog cuz they're just hard to kill and and I I'd never thought about the age structure uh, I'm glad I asked the question because that's an answer that I I guess I, I, I wouldn't have anticipated, but it makes a lot of sense. If you start, if you're able to systematically and not just opportunistically harvest hogs and you're able to change that age structure, well, all of a sudden you're dealing with a, 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 a lot less educated pig and your your success rate, aside from the pure numbers and the control you have over how you're trapping them, you know, I guess you're saying... You're able to basically fool a lot more of them, a lot more, a lot more often, especially
1: when you're dealing with a younger herd. Absolutely, the older they get, the harder it is to do. And and you know, another thing I tell my customers, and I am in this business because I truly want to help people manage their fair haul problem. And that's all we're doing is managing. We're we're never going to eradicate them we're going to manage this problem but it's it's one tool in the toolbox to be able to do that and uh, you know i've got guys out there that that thermal hunt and i, I you know i have some guys that are in uh around the Pineville area, uh, Rougarou, Hog Control. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you, uh, Shane Kessler and those We had guys. them on the podcast, actually, a couple of years ago. If you guys, yeah, if, you're, if your followers don't follow those guys, follow them. They are absolutely some of the most efficient guys I've ever seen with with thermal. Our trap is just another tool in the toolbox. If you've got access to that kind of equipment and you're trained, watch Shane and those guys go out at night. If there's 13 hogs in a sounder, Odds are they're going to get twelve of them, but some nights they're going to get all thirteen. They're highly trained and effective with it. But one of the simplest things that I can offer to your listeners, outside of just getting a hog boss gate and calling us and letting us walk you through it, is to use exclusion fencing. If you're going to use if you, if you're going to use feed sites, which I don't know what the percentage of hunters in the state of Louisiana are around. Uh, Surrounding areas are feeding their deer, which I'm I'm on the fence about. I, I some properties I hunt I do, other properties I hunt I don't. Uh, you know, however you harvest your deer, it doesn't matter to me. I, I see both sides of it. I, I do it both ways, I enjoy it. But exclusion fencing, if you're gonna feed in a in an area that has feral hogs in it, use exclusion fencing or require it on your hunting clubs. And it it eliminates giving the hogs a free meal if you're pouring corn on the ground or if you got spinner feeders or gravity feeders these hogs are so smart they figure out a way to bump the gravity feeders or chew the necks off of them to where they'll spill feed out on the ground exclusion fencing can be as simple as they they make a panel called a hog panel and i believe that panel is 32 inches tall and you can get it in a 16 foot length but based on my experience, and I use them on all the clubs that I hunt on, that we feed on, we use exclusion fencing on, uh, six of the 16-foot hog panels. And a hog, for whatever reason, can jump out of that thing all day long, but he will not jump into it to feed.
3: Huh. That makes. We, that's interesting. We've
1: used this. I've used it in three states with equal effectiveness in in all three states. And that's Louisiana, Arkansas, and Mississippi. And it's been equally as effective in in all regions. But using the exclusion fencing, most of the other clubs around you are feeding just like you are. And if you're exclusion fencing on your property, the hogs are going to go, they're going to take the path of least resistance. They're going to go to the club that they can get the easy meal off of. so. That's a that's an easy method of hog control, even if you're not trapping hogs on your property.
2: So I've I've got a number of of people that I've heard this from, including one friend who I've recently had this conversation with, who has property in the St. Francisville area, that have talked about their struggle with getting deer to acclimate to that and for the deer to actually go in there. What what's your experience with that? I mean, I've hunted in Texas and Oklahoma and places like that where they've been around for so long that the deer is just natural to the deer. But I am I am concerned if I go out to my property right now and I go put an exclusion fence up in an area around a feeder, you know, what, what do I need to do? What should I expect? Because I, I mean, I almost, you know, expect for the deer to be, to shy away from it.
1: So what we learned is, you know, you're going to put this thing up and it's just like anything new to a deer. I honestly believe you could, train a, a, a wild deer to jump through a flaming hoop to go eating a pile of corn if you had the patience to do it. So what we saw in, in my first experience with this was in St. Francisville, Louisiana. We decided to uh, try the exclusion fencing around our, we were using the boss buck feeders at the time. And the hogs had gone in. the The boss bucks have a little lip on them that keeps the the grain from whatever you're feeding. We were feeding corn and protein and a couple of other things, but the hogs would chew that lip off of it. And then they would figure it out they could bump the leg, and they could just it was just like a pest dispenser. They could just bump it out as they wanted it. So they would sit there and empty a 500 pound feeder in two or three days, and it was getting really expensive. So we started using the exclusion fencing, and what we found is the deer didn't like it at first. So uh, we tried it on about, I think we started out with six bait sites, two of which we went and we were using the hog panel. I think it's 32 inches tall. We were using six of the 16 footers. And on opposite sides, we trimmed that thing down. I think it's uh, maybe four or six inches in the, the wire, we trimmed it down to one, one row of wire on opposite sides. And the first year we had does and fawns start to use it. Within two generations, so not the second year, but the third year, the deer used it like it had been there their entire lives. Huh. So it, it does take a little bit of conditioning on the deer, some of them used it the first year, more of them used it the second year. By the third year, I couldn't tell that there was any difference had there not been an exclusion fencing or if it had been wide open bait site.
2: Gotcha. Well, I, I guess that's the obvious answer that just an acclimation yeah. period. Yeah. Most people there. just don't have the patience. You know, all you're doing
1: in, in, in every club is like this you're training your deer to do what you want them to do whether it's if you're baiting them or if you're using scents or mock scrapes, or you're you're training that deer to do what you want them to do. You just got to have the patience for them to catch up with whatever trick it is you're trying to get them to learn. Yeah.
3: Well, let me ask you this, Corey. Um, when you catch not a full sounder, but let's say you've got, I don't know, 15 hogs, you catch seven or eight of them. Um, are you – is your experience with not necessarily your trap, but trapping in general, are the rest of those hogs going to go back in that trap within a short period of time, or do you kind of have to set up and move it somewhere else to make it a new spot again?
1: It's not. You've hurt yourself when you – Doing less than sound or trapping, I mean it, it's very difficult. And and what I try to tell my customers, are your target number should be 90%. And this isn't this isn't some arbitrary number that that we came up with, hey, let's use 90%. The these numbers are all based on scientific studies. Uh university researches, uh researchers have used uh have done multiple studies on this to come up with these numbers. But the number that, uh, that you'll see if you do the research is around 90%, and that's, that's usually our target. So if you've got 10 hogs, the one hog that's going to hang up, I can always promise you, is going to be that old sow. But don't let that old sow prevent you from dropping the gate. So if you've got 10 hogs, she hangs up outside the gate, drop the gate, remove the hogs you've not really hurt yourself with it because she, your turnaround time on her may be, it may be a week. It may be a month. It may be never, she may never go in there. And it all, every hog has a different history with them and you're not really privileged to what their history is. Yeah. yeah, every Every time you interact with them, they learn from that interaction. So you can train them to do what you want them to do, or you can train them to do what you don't want them to do. But the 90% number is something that we try to stick by. And, and most of my clients will tell you, you know, patience is key. It's, it's not a, oh, I bought my hog boss gate. I'm going to set it up Friday. We're going to fire it Saturday morning. It just doesn't work that way, uh, unfortunately. I wish it did. If it did, it would make it so much easier for everybody. And we would probably sell a thousand times more product than what we do. But when you get serious about feral hog control, you realize that a lot of it is patience on your part. But the good thing about feral hog, the, the, the hog ball system is you only fire the gate when you want to fire. It. So if you want to feed yeah. them out, if you live three hours away from your hunting club, you can set this thing up. You can feed it out. You can do surveillance on your cameras and figure out, you know, what sounders are using the trap and how many pigs are in that sounder and develop a plan over a period of time and say, okay, I'm just going to let them eat for free. And you just pile the feed to them. And we're talking about two to 300 pounds of feed is what I recommend when you bait your traps. And hopefully over time, you'll get them conditioned to that trap to where you're headed up to camp on Friday night and you got some guys coming in, you'll be able to fire it that night. And, uh, uh, harvest the hogs the next morning everybody has a great weekend
2: yeah that it without a doubt is one of the it kind of parallels the industry of 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 all the technological innovation and trail cameras your product what i'm getting at there is your product parallels that in innovation for for at least our industry and especially in the south where we're dealing with hogs uh, it's a, it's a very innovative and i i hate to say it but in the outdoor industry a lot of things that are considered innovative aren't all that useful uh the marketing of them makes them seem more useful than they are this one is absolutely uh unique in that way i i i know quite a few people that use your product or a similar product and and have a lot of success with it and to your point the patience is is a big thing you you're not going to do it overnight you know it's not just going to happen just because you stick it out there and you kind of i feel like you probably uh you could probably validate or or tell me i'm wrong with this just based off the number of clients and people that you get feedback from every product or every property every location is probably a little bit different you probably got to tailor your attack and your use of the product to uh kind of the specific needs of your area right
1: they are and you know there's a lot of youtube videos out there on people trapping hogs and you know to use you guys area which is a very big market for me south louisiana as a uh as an example you know they they look online and they see these guys in texas that are catching you know 60 hogs in a sounder well that that sounder doesn't exist in louisiana it especially doesn't exist in south louisiana your sounder sizes down there are, you know, five or six hogs is a normal size sounder for South Louisiana. Guy calls me and says, hey, I've got five or six hogs coming out." The first thing I asked him, where do you live at? Well, I'm in uh, Hammond, Louisiana. Oh, okay. Well, that's probably the entire sounder. Let's watch them for a couple of days and see what happens. Uh, I have certain ways I like to position the camera on the trap to uh, kind of pick up any of the stragglers outside of the uh, perimeter. And we'll make some adjustments that way. But typically for your part of the state, you know, five, six hogs, eight hog sounder will be a really big sounder down there. Yeah. Whereas in, you know, parts of Texas, it's even hard to put a number on it for me because I have, I've got guys that have caught over a hundred hogs down there, which is hard for me to wrap my head mm. around because I've never seen a sounder of hogs that big in my that's, life.
2: That's just hard. That really is hard to, yeah. hard to imagine.
1: You know, North Louisiana, uh, average sounder size, I'd say, would probably be around maybe 14, 15 pigs. But it's not unusual to have 20 pigs. You know, Mm. if you catch 30 pigs, that's a huge sounder for North Louisiana. And we've got plenty of hogs up here.
4: Mm.
1: It's amazing how diverse they are from region to region. And these are all things that I had to learn because I didn't get into this business being a wildlife biologist that studied you know the feral hogs, and you know their reproductive rates, and you know their, you know, just all of the 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 things that you need to know about feral hogs. Once you, you're, you're, they're fascinating creatures. I've just picked up all these things over the years and dealing with so many different areas, inside outside the country. Uh, the Caribbean, Hawaii is a is a is a growing market. They have a huge feral hog problem in Hawaii. Uh, even yeah. British Columbia, uh, you know, the, the a lot of people don't know that they have a feral hog problem in Canada. Uh, the feral hogs up there will actually build what they call pigloos. Uh, what a great name. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it great? Fantastic name one, they, for they something. When the term pigloo, they burrow into the snow and just overwinter in the snow and
2: hi, pretty much hibernate like a bear does. If you ever... Ever, if you're listening to this and you you ever questioned how smart a hog is, you just wrapped it up right there. I'm telling you how I adaptable and smart a hog is.
1: On the planet that they can't survive.
2: So, what is your what is your opinion about this? And uh, because this this what I'm about to ask you is something that I think about on a regular basis, and I can't figure it out. Why has the agricultural Midwest been so spared? Because they're right there. I mean, they're in northern Arkansas, they're in northern Oklahoma, et cetera. But when you go into Kansas, Missouri? You know, our agricultural belt of the nation—they don't have them. And it, and act, and and you would think that they would thrive with all the ag and all the food. What is your opinion and your experience with this? Why haven't they gotten there yet?
1: They they do thrive
2: in those areas. Uh, in in the very reason that they
1: haven't gotten the problem and, it, and it's growing i mean you can you can watch the maps i mean we, we look at studies every day where uh in fact the area that i hunt in in illinois when you check in a deer they ask you did you see a feral hog on this hunt that's one of the questions that they ask you for that county uh they're spreading to those areas rapidly but what they don't have up there and you guys being avid bow hunters like you are one of the things that you've noticed when you travel to kansas missouri illinois oklahoma people are not as avid hunters up there as we are you know there's always these expanses of property like why does somebody hunt this or why is this piece of property available or why is this farmer not on his own property like they do in louisiana because everybody hunts in louisiana yeah we are the sportsman's paradise and one of the things that and i grew up with this my grandfather had dogs and they loved to hog hunt and you know i'm not don't I don't, I don't mean to go down this path and blame this on, on dog hunters because that's, that's don't not, do it, what do it. it's <laughs> avid sportsmanship. People love to engage in the outdoors in our state and they like to do it 365 days a year. And if there is an outlet for them to blow the steam off, you know, to say they're going to do it. And feral hogs had been a big part of the South for a long time, and hog dogging is a big part of it. And you know, as well as I do, if a guy's got hogs on a piece of property and you got dogs, that's a special pe- piece of property. So they may trap a hog here or there and move it to a piece of property that didn't have hogs, and they know how quickly they take hold. And that has a huge part to do with the feral hog problem we got in the South. And and not so much in the Midwest
2: because they're not hog doggers up there.
1: They're
4: barely in deer Pittsburgh, hunters
1: for the most
2: part. Yeah, they haven't they haven't moved them around for that reason. Right. Well, I, I also think uh, I'm curious to your opinion on this because Kyler and I, uh, you know, along with uh, a variety of guests, have had that conversation about why is deer hunting so different? Why is it quote unquote better? uh all that sort of thing and and we've talked around that exact same topic about how when you go up to the midwest there's so many places up there where deer season deer hunting doesn't have the culture it has here it's a it's an event that happens a couple of weeks out of the year blah 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 all these things and so you know but the other factor that i've brought into that conversations on on many occasions and, and tried to explain to people who haven't gone up and hunted in kansas or missouri or illinois or or any of these places, is we get the impression by listening to the stories of our buddies that have gone up and hunted the rut in the Midwest and, and what we see on outdoor television and, and whatnot that it's just this unbelievable just circus of deer all over the place, and it's just crazy. And But the truth of it is it's it's really not. They're just a lot more visible. The, the landscape is so different that, you know, you go hunt a 300-acre farm in, in the Midwest somewhere it probably has by the numbers less deer than a 300 acre property in Louisiana. The difference is uh, the management structure from, from the state department on how many deer are killed off of it is obviously very different. And then also for the time of the year that people are out there deer hunting, y- you got 300 acres and, and 190 or, or even maybe 250 of it is open field. So, the deer are a lot more visible, and I and I feel like also that that's going to be a hindering factor with hogs is with because obviously the farmers aren't going to take kindly to it at all, you know they're gonna they're going to come I would expect they're going to come out in force once hogs start to intrude and there's not going to be nearly the ability for hogs to to evade um, that you know that 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 force of, of the human force of of trying to move them and get them off because what they, what are they going to do? They're going to go down in a ditch row and that ditch row is yeah. 50, 60 yards wide and it runs for a mile. But I mean, there's nowhere else for them to go down here. They jump off in a hundred acre pine thicket and you don't see them for a month. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's a big issue uh, for, for that. One of the
1: things, one of the things that I've seen uh, with, with states that, that don't have a uh, per se feral hog problem i think that they are very proactive I, I know you guys have hunted out of state and I'm, I'm not trying to slam the state of louisiana i am born and raised and i will be buried in the state of louisiana i promise you that but after traveling as much as i have hunting in different areas there's a lot of other states that manage their resources way better than we do in the state of louisiana uh, and and oh, I, I don't really understand why that is, you know, I, Texas, for instance, Texas, maybe it is. But, you know, I think that it's use of the money that's coming into uh, maybe collections through uh, through licensure is used more towards the the sport in other states than it is in the state of Louisiana. And I'm not, I don't know the number, I don't know how much money they use from the seller of licensure in the state of Louisiana. But I'm telling you, in Texas and in Missouri and in, in Illinois and Oklahoma, and other places that I've hunted, it's amazing how they put those dollars to use on public lands where you can go in and actually enjoy the hunt and not have people tripping over you. They they plant, some of these places plant food plots for the hunters. It's crazy what they do out there in other states. But getting back to the feral hog problem, I think the same thing. These states are watching what's going on in the southern states and the plight that we have with the feral hog problem, and they're trying to get ahead of it. They're being proactive, and they're trying to use their resources now to get ahead of it so that they don't end up in the same problem that we have. And in, in the state of Louisiana alone, I think it was three years ago, it was estimated at $75 million worth of feral hog damage. And that doesn't include private landowners, uh, people that live in homeowners associations that have their lawns uprooted, uh, hunting club, you know, uh, members that have their, you know, food plots torn up or feeders torn up. It, it didn't even include that number. That was mostly for, you uh, for the farming industry 75 million dollars just mm-hmm. in the state of louisiana i think these other states see that and they're trying to get out ahead of it and that's why they do these surveys when you check your deer in hey did you see a feral hog in this county and yeah. if they do then they had they're proactive they get ahead of it and try to figure out target exactly where that sounder is and go in and try to eliminate it
2: i, I may rub some of our friends that it's we fine. have on this podcast the wrong way. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> but it, because I, I because I don't mean this ov- overly negative, but it's hard for me not to believe that when you look at economic factors for both local and statewide and you take Louisiana and Mississippi, that that that's our bread and butter here with with this brand and what we do. You look at those two states and the, the issues that we have economically, statewide, and at the local level, and then you compare that against the number, the days of opportunity for hunting, the industry that is created from leasing land and managing hunting camps, the local economy that's brought into all these small communities where there are tons of pieces of property that, that are that are basically a hunting camp, half or more of the year. When you look at all of that, it's really hard to not believe or to consider that there's part of the financial and regulatory decision-making that leans towards using the natural resource as an economic benefit as opposed to you go to a state where you have a very short season, you only get one tag, A lot of that's lottery and not everybody's even guaranteed to get to hunt. There's not the ability to compare economy in that situation. So the decision-making is more leaning towards wildlife biology and less towards opportunity and economic opportunity. It's hard for me not to look at that objectively and say, how can it not be? Right? Like, how can you not... If you're in Louisiana, small-town Louisiana somewhere, and half of your parish is, 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 is funded by not only the local economy of deer hunters coming in from September to February, but also all the local landowners that a huge part of their yearly income is the property that they lease to hunters and all that kind of stuff, you're going to provide more hunting opportunity. You are You're going gonna to make decisions regulatory that allows more days of opportunity. That allows more harvest, it brings in more dollars, it 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 feeds the engine. There's no reason to do that in Kansas where half the people don't even get a tag and the other half can only shoot one deer and they're only hunting two weeks out of the year.
1: When was the last time you went to Kansas? Uh uh the springtime. <laughs> how many how many Louisiana and Texas like plates? Exactly.
2: <laughs> it's exactly.
1: insane.
2: Exactly. Um it's insane. It's, I, I live and work in an area close to the state line and I see it in b- on both sides both in rural Mississippi as well as rural Louisiana there are lots and lots of people um that benefit tremendously from the deer hunting and just general hunting culture that exists in the south and for the the state has to take it they have to take note of that and it has to play a decision on some level uh, play a factor on some level in a lot of these decision making So, uh, you know, I mean, we're going down a rabbit hole with that, but would you look at how all of this is managed? Um,
1: I think that if the state went in and did a psychological evaluation of the average deer hunter in the state of Louisiana and how much that outdoor activity motivates him for the other, you know, nine months out of the year i think that that they would understand how driven we are and how how big a part of our lives that hunting is we never quit thinking about it i mean the whole reason that hog boss gates exists is because of deer hunting that's (laughs) my passion exactly i'm trying to get rid of hogs so that i can have a more effective and 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 successful deer hunt
2: How many friends do you have, both of you? How many friends could you honestly say without naming a name that sometime over the last couple of years have made a ridiculous financial decision based off of hunting? All of them, (laughs) you know, I I encourage it. I'm the, I'm, I'm the, I'm the biggest cheerleader. If
1: I, if I got a buddy that's on the fence of spending money, a ridiculous amount of money on something stupid that he doesn't need, I say, please please ask me to come with me
2: because I promise you I'll talk you into it. Well, I've had this conversation. I've had this conversation with a farmer in the Midwest before, very much aligned with what we're talking about. And I've asked that question. Like you see these guys from Louisiana and Arkansas and Texas and Mississippi, they all come up here and they're all like, you know, they they can't understand the amount of money and time and effort we put into coming up there and shooting one of their deer. And you ask them the question like, hey, man, Man, you know how much better it would be if you would just use these tree stands, or you would do this, and you do. And they're like, "Why? I'm gonna go sit on the edge of that cornfield a couple of weekends and fill my one tag, and that's that. Why would I do all that?" On the other let, hand, let me, we're, we're doing everything we possibly can to go fill that one tag. No doubt.
3: Do you do you know that? Do you know what we have in Louisiana that is? just as ridiculous of a pursuit to us as deer hunting is our deer hunting pursuit is to them what's that bourbon street <laughs> bourbon street <laughs> it's I'm, I'm telling you man i worked on bourbon street for a long time in college and when you get these midwest folks down it's like mini vegas they lose their minds. like they could drink beer any time of day up there but they come down and they start ordering hand grenades at 11 a.m on it's like a wednesday And that is the equivalent of us going up there to shoot their deer. Like, we see them walking around knowing that they're going to be immobile by 5 p.m. And we're like, what is wrong with you? And they look at us the same way when we roll into town into, you know, Peoria, Illinois, or, you know, somewhere in Kansas, Oklahoma, whatever. They're just like, why do these guys come down? And I'd be on the balcony of Urban Street bartending or bouncing or whatever back in 2006 wondering, like, the hell do these guys think this is so great
1: for (laughs) you know i want to give a shout out i want to get a shout out to anybody in uh kansas missouri northern missouri parts of illinois if you want to come to bourbon street for a five day just blow it out i'll pay for it if you own 500 acres or more of some good white tail (laughs) land up there i'll I'll trade you that.
2: well even yeah (laughs)
3: I'll pre I'll pre-buy some bar tabs for you up and down the block. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, but I, th- that means it's, it's the same thing, you know, like we don't I like I know I lived in New Orleans for a long time for college and nobody in New Orleans goes to Bourbon Street seriously. Like any time you would end up there it was like as a joke or it was like the fourth place you went to that night. But up there in the Midwest, when we show up there, nobody – like, pe- people are adamant about deer hunting, but they're very compartmentalized about it. Because most of the time, your farmers are trying to get their crops out. So hunting is secondary in their mind. It's not a priority like it is for us. Um, so yeah. anyway, I, actually, actually, I've heard, I've, I've heard this year, since it's been so dry, and it's been a relatively um, reasonable summer and growing period, that a lot of crops are out early this year.
2: Yeah they um, yeah. they have been the places that I'm privy to they there's been an earlier harvest which is a welcome thing for us i uh, sure they
1: they've got 90 percent of our crops out in uh, in our surround the the fields that surround our lease in Illinois right now and today let me tell you the cameras blew up it was insane the last 24 hours up there have been insane i don't know what's going on It wasn't like this this time last year. Of course, the weather wasn't quite as cooperative either, but it is
2: insane up there right now. Tyler, I'm just going to go ahead and prepare you, buddy. Me and you are not drawing the good good end of the straw or whatever on this deal because both of us are going. You're going on the 10th or the 11th. I'm going on the 9th, and every sign points to the fact that we're going to sit there and watch a lockdown period for a week.
1: I think you're going to be. Oh, good really?
2: really? Either that, or we're going to catch good. the second, the second no, I, phase. I think
1: you're going to be fine this year. I, I think the the areas that we were looking at on our cameras, there were two areas in particular, and I think it was just really early dose coming in. We had like one camera. We had five or six different bucks, three of which were. 135 plus inch deer one of them was probably 160 inches the other camera had probably three or four shooter bucks on it and it was just it was isolated but it was so exciting to watch it today with this front coming in and the deer activity picking up i still yeah. think those dates are going to be perfect for uh midwest this year i hope you're
3: right yeah. i hope you're right i, I think I specifically they were- <laughs> like when i put my order in I specifically requested great deer activity for yeah. the week
2: that I was there. Yeah, well,
3: so cause I, I, cause I, I tried to return my hunt last year and they wouldn't take it back.
2: I am very, I am very apprehensive about it. Um, typically November the 8th from Southeast Kansas, all the way to Northwest Missouri, um, Southeastern Nebraska, uh, that hunt, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good stretch. It's about a four-hour stretch between those two. So the dates can vary, but in my experience over the last 10-plus years, November the 8th, the 5th through the 12th is, is the. Yeah, but November the 8th, I've, I've killed, I don't know, at this point I've killed five or six Pope and Young bucks on November the 8th over the if last... I've
1: got, if I've got five days to spend up there, I'm going to try to make the 10th in the middle of it yeah
2: so the 10th is the start of my hunt i'm apprehensive and let me tell you a quick story before we wrap up that just is a a, a personal dagger so last night I, I i don't often lay around and watch outdoor tv anymore these days uh if you ever have the chance to to get involved in that and and film and produce hunts which i've been doing for a while now it, it takes a little bit of it out of you so i don't watch a lot of it but last night i I found myself with some downtime and I didn't have anything to watch. And I had some DVR'd episodes of the Primo's truth about hunting show. So I'm laying and I'm laying around watching those. And my son's, I I mentioned earlier, he's all geeked up about hunting this year. So he's watching hunting shows with me. And two of the Primo's guys went up to Kansas. this is from last year. And I, I mentioned, I've been apprehensive about my date choices for this year, but it's just what worked with my personal schedule. So they go up there and they never mentioned what date they were there, but I find myself being that I go up there every year. Um, over the last however long that when I watch these hunting shows, I can kind of tell because I remember what the weather was on those days myself. You know, so I'll see the juries or the primos guys or some YouTube video. I'll see them hunting in the Midwest, and I know they're you know within a couple hours of where I was, and I can remember what the weather was like, and I and so I can see what they were experiences. Uh, uh compared against what i experienced in that same time so they go up there and they're hunting in kansas and they're kind of south central kansas not very far away from from 180 where i hunt in kansas and the first day they were there they had a ton of activity the second day one of the two rattled up like three or four bucks and end up shooting a really nice big mature buck and then the rest of the episode tailed off and the other guy in the group, he sat from daylight to dark for four straight days, and the deer went in lockdown, and he didn't see a shooter for four days. (laughs) And on the last scene of the episode, he said, well, it was getting dark. You know, you could see the sunset on a cut crop field behind him, and he was kind of like, yeah, our hunt's wrapping up, and we're going to head back to Mississippi, and we're going to hunt this property, and we've had a great hunt, but he said, you know, Uh, we had a lot of action those first two days. They were really going and they hit lockdown and it's just been, it's been a tough four days. We've hardly seen anything. And he goes, it's not supposed to be like this on November the 16th, but here we are. And my heart just sunk. (laughs) And I was like, I'm going to be in Kansas from November the 13th through the 17th. Please don't say that to
1: me. Yeah. I'll tell you what I I hunted last year and I kind of felt the same way my, the last week of my hunt in, in Illinois. Uh, I just wasn't seeing what everybody else was seeing. It seemed like everywhere I went, it is just kind of, it had kind of shut down. But there were areas on the property. If you experience that in the Midwest, if you have two or three hunts and you zeroed out, move to a completely different area on that
2: property, the deer bunch up. Yeah, they They do.
1: do. when the the, the the predominant duck buck in that area beds down with a doe, I don't know what it is, but you don't see any other deer
2: move into that well, they area. All, they, yeah, they they bunch up, and, and they don't move much. It's yeah. hard. I'm it's, still learning, man. I've been
1: doing this a long time, but uh, last year was definitely a learning experience for me. I, I kind of focused. I had an area that I targeted. I felt like I knew it, like the back of my hand, and I just hammered it, and uh, I should have moved and didn't yeah i think that i kind of hit a lockdown in
2: that area it's a hard thing because like i know kyler experienced some of the same we were in the midwest in different areas but in the midwest at the same time last year and it's kind of easy when you're there and the weather doesn't cooperate and you know that there's high winds from the south and it's way warmer than it should be and like in my specific circumstances i wasn't seeing much of anything on those days but the cameras were still very active at night and it was kind of easy to diagnose hey this warm weather's just got the daylight movement oh. shut down they're still chasing does at night they're still f- scrapes being freshened up and cameras are showing activity but it's all at night and it and it's 75 degrees what do you expect but when you go up there and and it's whatever part of November and you know you're you're hunting in areas that are supposed to be great and the weather is perfect and you hit that period, and you sit there for hours and hours, and you literally don't hardly see anything—not even a yearling. It is, <laughs> it is a hard thing. I've I've hunted in camp with guys who were kind of on uh, some of their first experiences hunting the Midwest, and and they're like dumb—they're they're dumbfounded. Like this is not what I signed up for. I'm like, look, you got to understand that tomorrow morning, those those bucks might come loose because they're gonna you know lock down for whatever it is, 48 hours at times and stuff, it's go, it, it can all of a sudden turn into, it's like somebody opened one of the hog boss gates and let them all out. And it just completely changes, you know, when they start searching again. But it can be, man, it can be hard. When, when to, it's hard to figure it out, and it's hard to sit there when you don't see anything. And, and then, like I mentioned earlier, most of the time, you can see a long way. And that even makes it worse because you're like, I don't even see anything on the other side of this field, <laughs> you know, so. I've
1: spent the last six months trying to break down these uh, linear ways of thinking that I've developed over the years of deer hunting and, and I've made great strides in it. I, I found a couple of guys that I really like to listen to. Uh, one of them is a is a wildlife biologist uh, in specialty in, in whitetail deer, uh, Mr. Grant Woods, I'm sure that you mm-hmm. guys are familiar with him and i love to listen to that guy uh hold church i mean everything that he says it just makes so much sense and one of the things he tells you about during that lockdown phase is it's actually a two-fold problem with the the bucks being bedded down with the does but also the does have been chased for probably 15 days at that point and they're hiding they're yeah. hiding from the bucks so they go to the tightest structure that they can find to get away from them as if they're hiding from predators. So his yeah. strategy is to hunt the edges of those uh, bedding areas, those those really thick areas that he can see down into, especially in the Midwest because, you know, how wide open it can be out there. And you can see down into those big grass flats and uh, have a lot more success that way. So this year, that's uh tactic that I, I'm going to employ if I get up there and I feel like I'm in a lockdown phase, I'm gonna target those areas.
2: Well, we wish you a lot of success and we wanna just say thank you again for giving us an hour and forty five minutes of your night to to talk with I, us and man, I'm, I'm
1: sorry, I'm sorry it wasn't hog heavy, you know. That's okay. I'm gonna tell you, I'm a boat hunter first. <laughs> I mean, this is why I do what I do. Uh, I can talk about hogs. Uh, all day long every aspect of it i love it i I love helping people manage their feral hog problem if you do have a problem with hogs and you you think that the feral the the hog boss trap might be right for you uh there's a couple ways that you can reach us uh uh, if you if you type in hog boss trap or hog trap on google you're going to come up you're going to come up with our page pretty quick on there uh You can call us. It's uh, 833-464-2677 or 833-HOG-BOSS. You can get us that way. I guarantee you when you call us, either before or after you buy the product, you're going to talk to somebody on the phone. It's not going to be a computer. It's not going to be outsourced overseas. You're going to talk to somebody that is actually trapped hogs and familiar with the product and knows about the whole business
2: of it. Well, I I, I know we... That one of the things that we, I guess, Kyler, can we say that we pride ourselves in our ability to talk about God knows what? Um yeah. So that you know it makes the conversation so much better. But you still, I mean, we, you, you delivered a lot of very useful information, answered a lot of my questions. I've I've known about the product, and and I've uh, had plenty of people that I know use it and all that kind of stuff. But there's still a lot of information that you you gave us, and I hope. I hope it was helpful to some people, and I hope that uh, maybe it brought somebody a little bit closer to trying it out. And I wish you a lot of success on your upcoming hunts. And, um, you know, other than that, again, I want to just anybody that was affected today by some of the bad weather that that moved through our state, anybody that was around some of the tornadoes that hit, we pray for you and hope that everything um, is coming out uh, good for you. We know that a lot of people have dealt with a whole lot this year specifically with the hurricane and while i'm very happy that we had the front move through and bring us the cold weather i hope that people in some of the the worst areas didn't get it too bad and hope everybody enjoys a really really nice weather weekend that we have on tap all across our state and i just want to encourage you go out and uh, patronize our sponsors and advertisers on the podcast and uh, check out louisiana bow hunter and all of our retailers all across the state we got a lot of really cool new designs out there if you haven't picked any of those up you haven't seen them follow us check those out on social media and on our website and again at at plenty of different archery shops and and outdoor shops and stuff all across the state you can find our stuff we got some new stuff coming out with uh t-shirts and hoodies and that kind of thing so check it out and we will be back with you next week and uh anything else you got before we wrap up Kyler nope good to go All right, Corey, thanks again. We greatly appreciate your time, man.
1: Thank you all so much for having me on. I had a great time. Thank you. Thank you.